in philosophy, you have this, the subject of cause and effect. Cause and effect. Yeah, it's a subject of philosophy. The subject begins with the idea of causality or causation, however you want to say it. The subject is sometimes simply referred to as causality. Causality is this. It's the relation between an event, the cause, and a second event, the effect, where the second event is understood as a consequence of the first. To understand this in its most basic form, let's look at this simple question. In the whole subject of causality, in its most basic form, you have necessary and sufficient causes. We're gonna take a look at a basic equation for a sufficient cause. To state it plainly, it goes like this. If X is, necessary, is, is a necessary cause of Y, then the presence of Y necessarily implies the presence of X. The presence of X, however, does not imply that Y will occur. The basic equation would look like this, okay? So if you followed, you made it through that, okay? That's just a little bit of philosophy 101, okay? If X, then Y. This is the cause and effect, okay? So this is the basic equation. If X, then Y. Why? The X that we're going to take a look at today is Jesus and his gospel. Amen? If X, then Y. If Jesus and his gospel comes into your life, then there is a tremendous effect. We're going to look at that effect this morning. The cause X is an incredible cause. And because of this cause, there should be, there will be an effect Why? So the question this morning is this, what is the effect of the gospel? What is the effect of the gospel on a person? Now, Jesus is the son of God, amen? He's the son of God. And we talked about this last week. He's the son of God. And he also came into this world as the perfect man. And for this reason, Jesus is called in the New Testament the second Adam or the last Adam, right? And the idea there is simply this, that Adam was the son of God. We learn that from Luke's gospel, right? All these begats and begats, and it goes all the way back to Adam, Adam being the son of God, the direct creation of God in the garden, right? And so... Jesus is presented to us in the New Testament as the second Adam or the last Adam. He's the perfect man once again put into the world. Only this time when the second Adam or the last Adam comes, there, there wasn't a failure. There wasn't a fall. He lived out his life 100% perfect. Amen? And so, and we, we talked about this last week, as I said, uh, from Hebrews, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the author and perfecter of the faith. So this morning, we're going to look at this last Adam, this son of God who comes in and he preaches a gospel and he demonstrates the effect of the gospel. And then that effect of the gospel is 
is available to each and every one of us in our lives, amen? And, and, and let me tell you, I want the effect of the gospel in my life, amen? We already sung about it in the worship. There's one effect that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we've been made alive. Amen. So let's take a look at this this morning, the effect of the gospel. If you're taking notes, the first point is this. The effect of the gospel is there's strength for temptation. Strength for temptation. Let's pick it up in verse 12. It says this. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. One of the effects of the gospel and an effect that that Jesus showed us, and, and we see it here in the text today, is that as Christians, as people that put our faith in Christ, that there is strength available for, uh, to face temptation. Strength to face temptation. Jesus was identified with sinners at his baptism. Remember last week we talked about the baptism of Christ, and we talked about the fact that there was absolutely no reason why Jesus needed to be baptized. Here Jesus is coming to, to John the Baptist to be baptized and there's no reason, so much so that John literally tries to put a stop to it. Look, Jesus, you baptized me. I don't need to be baptizing you. You need to be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, no, no. So that all will be fulfilled, right? So he's, he's showing us how to live the life for Christ, to live as a Christian from top to bottom, from the start to the end with him. And one of the things that we will find in our lives, and we've found it in our lives before Christ, and we still continue to see it in our lives after Christ, that there's temptation. Temptation comes. In fact, we see here that Jesus was led out into the, into the wilderness, really. Uh, it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And so we're... we're as Jesus went out into the wilderness, he faced temptation. And of course, this models uh, life in general for us, right? And, and really, just as an aside, you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and see like, you know, you can see the template here, right? You can see that, that, that Adam and Eve were placed in a garden. And, and remember, there was a garden and, and, and the idea was that the garden would expand. The idea, the, the, the vision of God is that he, he, he put a, a garden eastward in Eden and that that garden would expand uh, and, and, and encompass the whole earth. The, the dominion that he had put in man would, would just fill the earth. And now we see uh, here in the beginning of the gospel, we see that Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. And, and as the last Adam, as the perfect man, as the son of God, he wants to go out into the wilderness and he is going to conquer the wilderness. Unlike uh, Adam and Eve who, who fell and fell into sin, disobeyed God, and, and, and sin and death entered the world, uh, at least from a human standpoint, uh, we see that Jesus is gonna go out and he's going to conquer 
the wilderness, and, and there's a lot of people out there in the wilderness this morning that need Jesus to come and conquer their wilderness, amen? There's people living in wilderness. There's people that are uh, just trapped in a wilderness, if you will. And for a believer, we see here in Jesus that there's strength for temptation. It's great to know that the person that we follow is, has been personally, has personal experience with the things that we face, that you and I face on a day-to-day basis. In fact, the writer of Hebrews put that this way in Hebrews 4.15. You'll see it on the, on the screen. He says this, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we have a high priest the writer is talking about Jesus, who is our high priest, and he can identify with our weakness. Why? Because he was tempted. He was driven out into the wilderness. He went out into that place. And the Bible says here that he was out there for 40 days, right? 40 days. Now, this uh, collection of verses about the, the temptation of Christ is one of the more limited uh, ones. Matthew has a longer portion, a description of what happened when Jesus was tempted. But we do have this information that he was there 40 days. And the, the number 40 is, is a number that has to do with a time of testing, right? There's a time of testing. There's a time of, um, you know, so, so you have the 40 years of, of, of the children of Israel in the desert. You have um, the 40 days of, of rain of Noah and the flood. And so this number 40 is a number of, of testing. And so Jesus goes out into the desert. He goes out into the wilderness to be tempted. Now Matthew's account specifically shows us that it was through dependence on the word of God that he overcame the, the, the temptation. He quoted scripture back to the temp- tempter right? Every time the enemy said, well, you're the son of God, or you're this, or you're that, so why don't you do this? Why don't you? So he was out there for 40 days, and he was fasting, right? One of the temptations we see in Matthew is the tempter says, well, you can just make for yourself a loaf of bread out of one of these stones. Go for it. You know, like a nice Panera loaf, right? <laughs> Like a nice Panera bread loaf, you know, there you go, go ahead. And, and, and Jesus overcame the temptation because he said, it is written, amen. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the will of God. And, and, and God wants us to realize that there is an answer to our situation, as Dan was alluding to, and there is a way through, and there is a, a thing that God wants to do in our lives, but it's, it's according to his will, it's according to his plan, it's according to his timing, and a lot of times, giving in to temptation is not simply having something that maybe God doesn't want us to have, but having it in our way on our timetable. That's the idea of, of really of sex outside of marriage, right? God created sex and he created it for the union of marriage between one man and one woman and, and it's, it's perfect and it's beautiful and it's this amazing thing in that context but outside of that, it's, it's not. And that's why when that temptation comes and people 
dive headlong into that. They're, they're, they're trying to get something that God does have for us, that God has given to us, that God has created, but it's outside of his parameters. It's outside of his timing for your life. So you need to be able to, to face temptation. You need to be able to be armed with the word of God. Amen? You need to be able to say, it is written. It is written. And I love how Jesus said that in Matthew repeatedly. Uh, and it's three times. It's three times. Now, we don't know how many temptations there were. We know that there were at least three from Matthew's account. Mark doesn't give us any idea of how many there were. It was just a time of testing, time of 40 days of testing. But I guarantee you, if it was three or four or five or a hundred, I guarantee you, Jesus was right there. Well, it is written. It is written. And that's why we need to have the word of God in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, because we need to quote scripture to our situations. We need to, we need to quote scripture to the tempter. We need to quote scripture to the temptation, and we need to take authority over that and say, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's what you're saying, but it is written, because we're, we're, here's what's happening. We're countering the temptation with the truth of God's word. You're countering the temptation with the truth of God's word because there's always a lie in the temptation. There's a, there's, there might be an element of truth. Hey, look, this is gonna be good. This is gonna feel good. This is gonna satisfy you. This is gonna make you this. It's gonna fill your belly, so to speak. There's always an element of truth, but in the end, it's a lie. And how can we counter lies? How can we counter the lies of the enemy but with the truth of God, the truth of God's word? That's why we need to be able to say it is written. And that is available to us as we follow Christ, as we, as we allow the gospel to be that thing that is alive and well in our lives. Amen? Alive and well in our hearts. And we're putting the word of God into our minds and into our hearts and so on. Amen? It was David who said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? And I think that's the idea. Now, it's, what's interesting here is Jesus is driven out into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And look at that next phrase that says, and he was with the wild beasts. Now you say to yourself on a Sunday morning, like, okay, what's that all about? He was out there like, uh, who was the guy from down under? Croc no, 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 no. Not Crocodile Dundee, the, the, the other guy. Steve Irwin, yeah, yeah. Was he, was, he, was he kind of like an early Steve Irwin? He's out there, and he's, you know, and, and Steve Irwin was crazy, right? I mean, he was always, you know, and he got some criticism, and I, and I have to admit, the one where he's dangling the baby and the crocodile, I was like, ah, you know, I, I don't know. I wouldn't have done it. But, but anyways, he, you know, he did some crazy stuff. Was, was, was uh, Jesus kind of like that precursor, like the, you know, the, of, of, of like a Steve Irwin that would come? No, he, he was the son of God, the son of man, the second Adam. If you go back to the first Adam before the fall, all the animals came, he, he literally named all the animals, right? Now, we don't know how long that took, and the Bible doesn't tell us. It was probably a long time, you know, but there was a lot of time. Amen. 
And, and, and Adam did this, and so we see this passage here where, where Jesus is out there with the wild beasts. There's a couple things here that I want to talk about. Most people, like, you know, you won't hear too much commentary on Jesus was with the wild beasts on, on, in a message, okay? But I think this is important and fascinating, actually, because Jesus is out there in the desert with the wild beast. Number one, the idea of being out in the wilderness was kind of being out there with the beast. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the reasons why they built walled cities back in those days was it was protection from the, the, just the wild out there. And, um, and uh, so, but Jesus goes out into the wilderness and it says he was with the wild beast. He was out there with. In other words, the, the wild beast saw Jesus in a completely different, I mean, he was, he was master of the domain. He was master of the wilderness. He was master of the wild beasts. And, and so this is, this is the authority that Adam had, and now Jesus is, is, is demonstrating this and walking in this. Now, one of the things that I think we can draw out of this is that God, uh, through Christ, wants us to walk in his dominion and authority and walk in where his peace is ruling. Now, there is a day and time. Now, I've seen some gruesome uh, video of... Uh, well, I won't get too descriptive here this morning, but there's, there's a video with, of a zebra crossing a lake somewhere like in uh, Africa, and it is just gruesome, you know, where the, the croc comes up, and, you know, there's, there's some real, real wild stuff out there with the wild beasts, right? But there's a time, there's a day and age to come, and the Bible tells us that in the end, in the restoration of all things, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Now, you put a lamb out on the open savanna, uh, out there in Kenya somewhere, and that thing is just a sitting duck, <laughs> so to speak. But there's a time, there's going to be this perfect peace that's going to rule and reign. And the reality is that if we've responded to the gospel, the gospel of peace has come into our hearts, that, that peace has been made with God. The enmity that was between man and God has been made, and God wants to not only deal with uh, and, and, and have you walk in the reality that that peace is, is, is ruling and reigning in your life, but there's a peace that passes understanding that you and I can walk in every day of of our lives, irregardless of the circumstances that you and I might find ourselves in. And so we can be like Jesus. The effect of the gospel in our lives can be that, that we're out there in the wilderness with the wild beasts, you know? I'm reminded of a book that I, you know, one of the famous kids' books, all the boys loved it, where the wild things are, right? I think they made a movie about it, although I didn't see it. And I heard it got some thumbs down and all that. And maybe I let the critics uh, stop me from seeing Anybody see that movie? Yeah? No? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? Nah, so-so. Um, where the wild things are. Folks, you're out there. <laughs> you're out there where the wild things are. And it's wild and crazy out there. And we need the peace of Jesus. We need the dominion and authority of Christ resting, ruling, reigning in our hearts and lives. And that is an effect of the gospel. Amen? And, uh, and then Jesus, um, he begins his ministry. 
he, he goes out to preach the gospel and it says that he does this in Galilee. I'll read the verse again. Verse 14, it says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So I think the question is for us, is what is the gospel? What is the gospel that, change, that changes man? You know, there, there, there might people that be out there and, 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 and self-proclaimed preachers, and they may say, well, I have a God. I have a good news. I have a way. I have a plan. But Jesus came, and he says, I've got the gospel. I've got the gospel. So the question is, what is the gospel that truly changes man? Jesus preached the gospel, and it says he preached it in Galilee. And every time I come to the passage like this, I always bring this up because I love it so much. It was the area of Galilee. If you go back to the, the division of the land at the end of Joshua, when, when Joshua gave, he basically gave every tribe a county, right? If you look at Israel, it's like here. And, and every tribe got their own land area. And they got their own county, right? And in the area right around the Sea of Galilee, which is really a lake, um, a beautiful, beautiful lake. In fact, if you're paying attention, the water of the Sea of Galilee is nearing an all-time high. They haven't had this much water in the Sea of Galilee in decades, and it's amazing, amazing to see what's going on over there. But in and around that area was the, was the inheritance of the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali. And the significance of that is that this area, this region, was the very first region, the very first area that was attacked when the Assyrians came in in 721 and attacked the northern kingdom. It was much later in 586 that the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar came in to Judea and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the wall and the temple there in 586 BC. But in 721, the Assyrians came down and they were the first ones that felt that oppression of, of that nation of Assyria coming against them. And wouldn't you know it, they're the very first area to hear Jesus preach the gospel. Amen? Those who were laying, lying, sitting in darkness have seen a great light, the prophet Isaiah would say it that way. That those who were in darkness, those who were in the wilderness, those that need to hear the message were the first ones to hear that message, and he brought it to Galilee. Amen? What did Jesus preach? He preached, he began to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is he saying? The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus is a king, and he brought a kingdom, and he said, the kingdom of God is here. And, and, and you can be a part of it if you'll repent of your way, if you'll turn from the, the way that you're going, if you'll repent from the direction that you're headed and, 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 and come to me, you can come into the kingdom of God. You can come and be a part of the plan of God that he has established from the foundation of the earth. When, when God laid the foundation of the earth, there was the, the plan of God. And now Jesus is here on the scene and he's saying the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is right here. What, 
What's the gospel he preached? What's the gospel that changes man? It's the, it's the gospel that says the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here and you can be a part of it. You can be a part of it. How? How can you be a part of the kingdom? Well, what, 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 what is this kingdom? It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom where, where when you come into it, you, you become a son and a daughter of God. You, you become a, a son of God. You become that direct creation. You see, Adam was formed with the, with the dust of the earth, right? But then he was given a life-giving spirit. He was, he was, he, God breathed into him and, and, and brought him to life, right? And, and we're like that. We're born. We're born in the natural way. You and I, every single person in here was born in the natural way, by the will of man, <laughs> right? Because a man and a woman got together, and voila, here you are. Here you sit this morning, amen? And every single person is here this morning because of that. But there's a different way that you come into the kingdom. You come into the kingdom because you're born from above, Jesus put it this way to Nicodemus, unless you're born from above, you will not see the kingdom, right? You will not even begin to see the kingdom unless you're born again. The idea there in scripture is born from above, born again in that sense, because you're born, you, it is being born a second time, but not the, like the first time, the natural way. It's a supernatural way. It's a supernatural birth. You're born into the spirit, into the family, into the kingdom, and you are a part of a kingdom. And let me tell you about this kingdom. The prophet said something about this kingdom. We see this verse of scripture on Christmas cards all the time, but I'm bringing it out here in March. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Amen? And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You're coming into a kingdom that will never, never end. So you have to repent Repent. We talked a little bit about that last week because John the Baptist was preaching repentance. He was, he was teaching, a, teaching and preaching a baptism of repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is turning away. It's, it's turning around. It's kind of a 180. We had this ministry, this evangelism ministry in our church in Orlando that this guy, we put together, and I think I actually still have the domain the dot com, operation180.com. If you go on there right now to just say parked free by, you know, whatever, because there's no website there right now. But anyways, we had that domain. We had a ministry, Operation 180. Why? Because it's an operation of, 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 of proclaiming to people that, that, hey, if you're living for yourself, if you're out there acting like you've got it all together and, and, and you, you're just, it's just a matter of time where you're going to bring it into the, you know, You know, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're out there on the highway. You're like one of those drivers that's falling asleep. You know, you know, rumble strips and the whole thing. And the rumble strips are there and trying to get your attention. And God wants you to wake up this morning and hear the message of the gospel that says, repent, turn around, stop, turn around, give your life to Jesus, come into the kingdom, be born again of the spirit of God and come into the everlasting kingdom of heaven. Amen. Because this is, you want to know what Jesus is about? You want to, everyone, everyone today wants to tell you what Jesus is about. Jesus is this, and he would only eat these foods and this and that. Well, he ate fish and bread and did eat the Passover lamb. 
But I'll tell you what Jesus is about. He's about proclaiming his kingdom. Amen? And he wants you to be a part of it. And there's one way for you to be a part of it. If you repent, and then he says, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Now, as Americans, when we hear that, we, we instantaneously hear believing on whether something is real or not, true or not. But the idea of believing the gospel is, is like that's almost like just such an elementary level of it. There's, it's that and so much more. It's knowing that it's true and real and putting your full faith and trust in it. Believe, believing the gospel is fully trusting the gospel. The word for faith in the New Testament is a Greek word, pistis. And it doesn't mean that something you, you believe or understand that something is real or exists. James says this, even the demons shudder and believe that God is. But a saving faith is a faith that says, I'm giving you my life, Jesus. I'm trusting everything that I am to you. I believe your gospel. I believe that you're a king. I believe that you have a kingdom. I believe that you came and you paid a king's ransom for my life. I believe that you laid down your life and shed your blood so that I could be redeemed and atoned for and bought back from the, from the slave trade of sin and brought into the kingdom to be free forevermore. Amen? And so, lastly tonight, today, there it is again, one. <laughs> it's only two on that tote board. The, the tonight tote board. You are called. You are called. Let's go back to the text. Verse 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after them. You say, well, I'd like to repent and believe the gospel. I'd love to be a part of the kingdom. But I don't know, is it for me? Is it really for me? And the reality is that you, it is for you. You are called. You are called. This is what Jesus does. He simply calls us. If you're a Christian and you're already a part of the kingdom, it's because you were called. It's because you were called that you are here and that you can testify today that you are part of the kingdom of heaven, the part of the kingdom of God. You are called. In fact, this is what it means to be a part of the church. To be a part of the church 
literally identifies yourself with the called ones. The New Testament word for the church is the Greek word ekklesia, which is taken from two root words, ek and klesia. Ek is out, klesia is called. The church is literally the gathering of the people who've been called out of the wilderness and into the kingdom of God, amen? To be in the church is to be called out. You are called. And not only were you called, you're called by name. Jesus calls us by our names. He knows your name. He knows your name and he calls you by name. He knows everything about you. And he calls you by name. Jesus called his disciples by name. He called Simon and Andrew and James and John right here in this text. And Simon and Andrew left their nets and followed. There they were fishermen. They were just as, they were on, they were at work. They were at work, Simon. You know who that is, right? Peter. This is Peter and Andrew we're talking about. This is Peter and Andrew. Peter's the more famous one, but Andrew's his brother. And Jesus calls them. And they leave their nets and they follow Jesus. And the text says he goes on a little farther and he sees James and John and they're in the boat mending their nets and there they are with their father. Zebedee is his name. And it says that James and John heard the call. They responded to the call. How did they do that? They left their nets and immediately followed him. So what does this tell me? What does this tell you? It tells me that when Jesus calls, there's this, there's this opportunity, there's this moment in time that happens that literally the, the correct response, the only good response, the only way to do it is to drop what you're doing, drop what you think is important to you, and run and cling to Jesus. Turn from whatever it is that you think you're grasping hold of, you're grasping hold of this thing, that's, the, that's, that's your savior. Maybe it is your job. Maybe it is something else. You're holding on tight. The Lord teaches us as his people to hold loosely to this world but have a firm grip on Christ. Amen? That's what we've got to do in this life. And we have this moment in time, and this is a snapshot of this moment in time in the lives of four of the great disciples of Jesus. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They left their nets and immediately followed Christ. They left their nets and immediately followed Jesus. It tells us this. When we respond to the gospel, nothing else can come first. Your response to the gospel has to be this. Nothing else can come first. Following Jesus is first. You can't put your hand to the plow and turn back. It's, 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 got to be, it's got to be primary. It's got to be primary. And if it's primary, God's going to do, he's going to bring a, a, about amazing effect in your life. The gospel is going to have an incredible, incredible effect in your life. But it's got to be primary. It says that James and John left their nets and their father 
in the boat. They're, you know, with the family business. The family, it was, it was Zebedee and Sons, right? You know, like Brooks Brothers, Zebedee and Sons. And they left Zebedee in the boat. And they followed Jesus. What does this tell you? This tells you that even family cannot come between you and the Lord. He must be primary. He must be first. He must be Lord. Amen? The response of the gospel is to, is to confess Jesus as Lord, is to say, not just with your lips, but with your heart, Jesus is the Lord of my life. And, 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 and not a job, and not a material possession, and, 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 and not a family member, or anyone is going to come between me and, and holding on to you, Jesus, and, 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 and making you the Lord of my life. Jesus says this in Luke 14, 26. You'll see it on the screen. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus just wants to make sure you understand. Nothing can come first. You say, wait a second. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, what? What in the world is Jesus saying? What in the world? He's not saying you have to hate your father, hate your mother, hate your wife and children. He's saying that your following of me, your grasping hold and firm of me, your believing of the gospel, your, 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 your trust in me, your confession of me as Lord has to be so primary in your life that in comparison, it would seem as hatred, the love that you have for for, for those that are secondary in your life. Can you imagine a love so primary in your life that it's that strong, it's that firm, it's that le a level of a trust and an obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And this is what Jesus wants. He, you say, well, what is God wanting? I'm just trying to live my life. I'm just trying to, I'm out here. I'm doing the work. I'm not a slacker. What do you want, Jesus? He wants you. He wants all of you. He says, look, even your own life, even your own life, and, and Jesus puts out a, a, an absolute paradox. It's a mystery. It's a paradox. He says, if, you'll lose, if, you, if you try to find your life, if you try to hold on to your life, Jesus says, you'll lose it. But if you'll lose your life for me, you'll find it. What does that mean? It means literally you, you, Paul put it this way in Colossians. You are complete in him, only in him. You're looking for the missing part. You're looking for the missing part. Jesus is the missing part. Pascal put it that way. There's a God-shaped hole in our hearts that only God can fill. He, he's the piece of the puzzle. I don't really... I'm not in love with the analogy because Jesus is so much more than the piece of the puzzle that's going to, you know, oh, no, 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 I found the last piece. Oh, 
Jesus isn't that little piece that completes the puzzle. Jesus is the whole puzzle, (laughs) right? And if you'll give your life, if you'll lose your life, the world thinks you give your life to Jesus, you've gone nuts, you've gone mad, you've lost your mind, you've lost your life, you've lost your freedom. And I say to you that it's the most logical thing you can do in light of everything that Jesus has done for you because he made himself the perfect sacrifice. He poured out his blood for you to cover, to be a covering of sin, of your sin, of my sin, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if, you'll, if, you'll, if we'll lose ourselves for him, we'll be found, we'll find our lives, we'll be free, we'll live forever for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It says only begotten in the King James, but really the idea there in John three sixteen is one of a kind. He gave his one of a kind son that whoever believes in him will not perish and have everlasting life. And so James and John and Peter and Andrew showed exactly the type of response that Jesus is, is looking for. Whatever you're holding on to this morning, would you drop it? Would you leave your nets? Would you grasp hold of Christ this morning? And let the gospel, let the true gospel bring the effect that God wants to bring into your life.